0: Welcome to the SASH Podcast, the Society for American Soccer History.
1: I hope you can feel their Scottish accents in there when you read the recollection. It's more likely that they use
2: a version of the game that was played at Princeton.
1: 1895, a woman who called herself Metty Honeyball formed the British Ladies Football Club. They interviewed him about his whole life. I mean, he just
0: told his story in his own words.
1: Hello, I'm Tom McCabe, president of the Society for American Soccer History. Founded in 1993, our society works to promote, facilitate, and disseminate research into our rich history and heritage, of course, soccer here in the United States. You can find us best on the web uh, at ussoccerhistory.org and on social media, um, Facebook and Twitter. If you'd like to join the society, great value or renew your membership, please visit the website and do so through the join SASH tab. Uh, Ed Farnsworth has been uh, sending out reminders. uh, So if you've gotten one of those in the last few weeks or months, uh, please renew today. Every group, every society needs idea people and David Kilpatrick is one such such person uh, for SASH. It was his idea uh, to have this research roundtable and appropriately he'll be hosting this flash session of mini presentations by some of our members Uh, and we're really excited to see uh, what Stephen and Chuck and Bob have been up to. So thanks to David for today's uh, session, its idea, we'll have other sessions like it. So if you have something you're working on, please get in touch with us, Uh, we'll put you in the queue. Um, So enjoy. Uh, Now over to you, David. Well,
3: thank you very much uh, for the introduction, Tom, and uh, thanks for the context you're providing. So uh, yeah, uh, I suppose I'm, I've been roped into the MC role today um, as being lead fool in some way, um, and uh, wasn't really thinking uh, about whatever conflicts there could be. Surely this is a, a, a wonderfully historic week for all of us. yeah. And hopefully some of you or most of you have recovered from the uh, celebrations uh, or the despair, as your take on it may have been. Uh, But, uh, yeah, the idea uh, behind a lot of these uh, SASH sessions is really just to provide a forum for us. And so much of it started uh, when we we couldn't have the uh, American Soccer History Symposium as as an in-person gathering, uh, adjusting to the context. And actually, it's a really great way uh we feel for, for us to really connect and and i again would, would say you know that's the real fun of it is just getting together with a great group of friends uh, in an inclusive environment that that just adds to that uh, camaraderie uh, so yeah uh playing the fool my love for alliteration is on full display today with this first friday sash session research roundtable say that seven times fast i dare you um, but uh, again, in that spirit of collegiality and sharing, right, um, something that's, that's a mnemonic device that we can remember, we know we're going to go to that, um, we're going to have some place we can come together and, and share ideas, and it's in that spirit today. So um, we've got a great trio of volunteers who were willing to uh, step up and, and, and share for this first um, research roundtable. Uh, where works in progress can be explored with uh, other members just as kind of a uh, FYI, hey, I'm working on this. Uh, in some cases, hey, anybody else have any leads? Do you know anything else about this? Uh, again, really just to, to share that, that sense of collegiality and, and camaraderie. And so uh, um, thank you so much to uh, Stephen Torres, Bob Gansler and Chuck Carlson who will be speaking in that sequence today. Uh, We've got a a really great group here and without uh, further ado, I'll introduce our our first speaker. Steven Torres has over two decades of national and international experience in the field of sports communications and media relations, after having worked with several football organizations. He's a New York City native where he's coming to us uh, today. He's, He's there in the Big Apple right now. Uh, he worked in two World Cups, the men's 1994, the women's 1999, and the Goodwill Games in 98. prior to his arrival at U.S. soccer um, in Chicago from 99 to 2003, where he mainly dealt with the Hispanic and international media. He then arrived at CONCACAF, where he spent the next decade as mostly the sole press officer for the Confederation. He actually holds the tenure record of most consecutive days, 3,675 as a member of the Communications Department in CONCACAF's 60-year history. Torres has worked as FIFA media officer in many tournaments and events, including World Cups 06, 10, the Olympics of 08 and 12, and in the modern-era version of the North American Soccer League, uh, Torres once again oversaw Hispanic and international media and instrumental in the first U.S. sports professional club, the New York Cosmos visiting Cuba following the end of the embargo in 2015. And what a trip that was, Steve, what a trip that was. During his 20 plus year uh, work span, Torres has also been a soccer historian for the region, North America, Central America, the Caribbean, uh, since the turn of the century, with extensive knowledge of tournaments uh, involving national teams, clubs, futsal and beach soccer. He's currently a sports public relations and media operations consultant, and he's a founding member, as well as the first elected president of the Association, uh, Norte Centroamericano y del Caribe uh, de Investigadores uh, de Football. Uh, Again, many apologies for my Spanish. Uh, So the Association of North, Central America, and the Caribbean of Football Investigators. So he can tell us more about that. Um, So, Stephen, the floor is yours. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much, uh, David, for the introduction. Sorry. No,
3: no, no. We're also keeping an eye on the final draw. Again, uh, apologies that I wasn't thinking about when that would be. I was thinking a little bit more about the game Wednesday than I was the draw Friday. I don't know why. Maybe some kind of unconscious pessimism or something, but here we are in the middle of it. So um, here we go.
4: Okay. Sorry for the delay, guys. Okay. Please begin. Perfect. So I'll start the the timer here, or somebody somebody will time me on this one. Thank you once again, uh, David, for the warm welcome. Um, Much appreciated. Uh, Purpose of my presentation here to SASH is to provide them basically what uh, ANSIF, which is the organization that I'm currently president of that we'll get into in a second. Um, We are celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Champions Cup projects. And most of all, we've – especially for this particular group, we'll be doing the U.S. club participations from 1963 to 1996. And, um, thanks for the introduction. I don't need to – all right, ANSI. Uh, of course, obviously, as was mentioned earlier, it's the organization that was formed in 2021. Um, the English version, of course, is the Association of North Central America and Caribbean football investigators. Basically it was 27 founding members. Um, Most of them are historians from the CONCACAF region. Um, As you can see the listing right there, um, 27 founding members going from uh, the United States, obviously I'm the only one representing the United States at the moment in the North, all the way to the South of that would be Aruba, um, that we have our representative. But we have many historians from Costa Rica, El Salvador, Cuba, Honduras. Um, we do have several historians that span uh, covering the region of South America. Um, this is due to the fact that we've had so many tournaments. Uh, I wouldn't say they overlap, but um, tournaments that also involve South American countries in our history. Examples are the CAC Games, the Central American and Caribbean Games, uh, the Pan American Games, Copa America, etc. So we do have members many members from Venezuela, Uruguay and Peru. As you can see, one of our board members is uh, Eli from Peru. Basically, our founding members, we decided just to do a specific task and to make sure that our objective is to establish the historical archives of football and soccer in North Central America and the Caribbean region. Uh, disseminate all the information deprived from the investigation and research that means that they considered necessary, whether physical or electronic. To cooperate with safeguarding properties, interests, and individuals, groups, research efforts, and members' associations, but most of all, is to promote and create in each country the re- in, in the region, the associations dedicated to helping the investigation and research and dissemination and history in local football/soccer. So basically, it's we're doing the research to make sure that we have the accurate information. Um, And believe me, there are a lot of holes that needs to be covered. Um, I also wanna thank, before I go to the next slide, is that uh, several of our founding members who are not on the board of directors at the present time, but have been key in helping me in my research and especially our key members in ANSIF, uh, Eric Longo, who is from Mexico, Francisco Aguilar of Guatemala, and Rodrigo Calvo of Costa Rica. Um, All three are respective uh, historians in their country, and have been able to provide me as much detail as possible, especially with the upcoming slide that I'll be presenting to you. Um, Lastly, uh, I would like to add that we've had an increase in our membership of 45% since our formation. We've added members coming from Belize, Canada, Haiti, Trinidad and Tobago, Curacao, and soon to be Suriname at the present time. Each of those countries have their history and we always welcome anyone membership to join us uh, as possible. We do have a Facebook page at the present time for social media, Twitter, and our email account as you can see in the bottom right there. This is the 60th anniversary of the Champions Cup. As many of you guys know, it is the uh, tournament that took place prior to the formation of the what is now known as the CCL, or the CONCACAF Champions League, but uh, it has a very rich history. As you can see uh, from the image here, several versions of the trophy has evolved throughout the years. And you, know, you can see how many clubs have lifted the trophy, many former national team players, World Cup players as well. Um, and even uh, later on, uh, briefly, we'll mention two US teams uh, com- that have lifted the trophy as well. Just a brief thing about the 60 year anniversary, it didn't be 2022 and the first official tournament of the Champions Cup was in 1962 for the region of CONCACAF. Remember CONCACAF was formed a year before in 1961 in September of 1961. Uh, this is the third oldest club tournament in the world uh, only Coma Bowl and UEFA tournaments are older. Uh, the 19, six, from 1968 to 1998, the tournament winner competed against the Libertadores Cup winner, or the Copa Libertadores winner for the Inter-America Cup trophy. Uh, at four occasions, uh, four teams from the regions were crowned the champions of the America at the time. Of course, that was prior to the formation of the FIFA Club World Cup. Um, So from 1999 to 2005, um, the Champions Cup winner went and represented the region at the respective FIFA Club World Cup. And in in four of those, four out of the five editions, uh, the team has reached at least a semi. And as mentioned uh, briefly before, the uh, Champions Cup run ended until uh, 2008 when the CCL officially launched. Projects that overall that we're working on with ANSIF for this year, the 60th Champions Cup, is throughout the year, ANSIF is putting out on a social media platform, the English versions of on this day, game recap stories with hashtags of the 60th Champions Cup. If some Many of you that do follow me, you normally would see the hashtag and you see the information that, keeps, that I keep putting out. Uh, it is also being uh, passed on to our uh, Facebook, uh, respective page. In the, we are looking into the future of, of having a website, um, and that is in the works in a very near future. ANSEF um, is also putting together a historical tournament year-by-year recap with statistical information results from each of the women' respective teams. ANSEF uh, members are all involved in contributing with the social media platforms, providing key stories, features on players, coaches, teams, videos, etc. But more importantly, and this, is when you guys come in, is uh, NSF is also researching and confirming complete all details of of related to every respective game from 1962 to 2008. How can uh, SASH help? Since our project, our overall project runs from 1962 to 2008, during the time that the CONCACAF Concacaf tournament was taking place, um, the tournament is to complete every team roster, coaches, travel, delegation, schedule fixtures, the complete match reports. That would be, of course, a typical box score of the lineups, referees, goal scores, and subs. Attendance is also a key factor. Um, team photos and action photos are crucial into completing this research. The way SASH can have their assistance With this project is through the U.S. club participation. And the club started to participate in 1963 with the first club. Running from 1963 to 1996, prior to the formation of MLS, you can see that the research has – it's only 59 percent complete. From 1997 to 2008, it's 98 research complete. So the key factor is prior to 1996. There you have a listing of the respective champions that represented the US in the Champions Cup, 1963 to 2008. I'm not gonna go through all listings of it because many of them have their own respective pages on this slide that we're gonna go as as quickly as possible. Uh, I wish I had more time, but it's only 15 minutes. Um, As you can see, the numbers next to, like, for example, the number three next to the near-participian freedoms is basically the number of times that they went to the they qualified to the Champions Cup um, as the respective champion of the Open Cup. Uh, as you can see, there were 11 major league soccer champions, of course, MLS Cup, uh, three from the American Soccer League, Detroit Express, Jacksonville Tiemens, the Sacramento Spirit or Sacramento Bowl, uh, one coming from the American Professional Soccer League. That's the uh, San Francisco Bay Blackhawks. Um, One from the North American Soccer League, and that was the Rochester Lancers. And one from the A-League, and that was the Seattle Sounders. Not the Sounders that are in MLS, but the Sounders that were at the USL's A-League. And these are the other respective teams that, US teams that competed at the uh, Champions Cup, but obviously they were not the champions, but somehow they either runner-up, let it be for MLS cup or the open cup. Um, They got their respective berths into the tournament. Um, The one that I will need to find and I'm very curious to to obtain is the bottom one that you can see is uh, the Long Island star Hercules. We'll get into more details when I get to their bio, but um, there's a big mystery on how that team or if that team actually exists or qualified to the tournament. And it's it's, it's it's one that has me very puzzled and uh, in, in wanting to find out if that is actually true. So the official tournament began in 1962. There was no U.S. representative. Of course, uh, the then United States Soccer Football Association, now U.S.S.F., sent a club team to compete in the inaugural tournament. Um, the Philadelphia Ukrainian Nationals didn't not, did not take part, but despite they had done the double winning the ASL title as well as the what was then the US Open Cup, but it was called the National Challenge Cup. Um, as you can see, Chivas from Mexico was the first champion defeating Guatemala's respective team of uh, Comunicaciones FC to lift that trophy. So let's begin. The first US team represented in the Champions Cup came in 1963. Uh, the New York-Hungaria Soccer Club, the first team to compete. And basically, um, I wish that there was more recognition done for this team, but uh, this team actually, in its first respective game against uh, Club Deportivo Oro of Mexico, defeated them 3-2 to two in Estadio Jalisco in front of a crowd of 35,000, behind a hat-trick by Andrew Andy Mate, a legend in soccer through the cosmopolitan area. And also a former player, brief player, a stint that he had with the New York Cosmos as David Gilpatrick knows. Um, the team was a semi-professional league, but of course under the German American Soccer League, but now the, the cosmopolitan soccer league. US Open Cup champions the year before. And as you can see, there are a couple of action shots the uh, action shot below of Andy Mate's hat trick at, uh, in Guadalajara and the team photo. Uh, very few T totals uh, I was able to find for the New York Hungaria, but this one was taken in Mexico prior to their trip to in Guadalajara. As you can see below, and you'll see in the bottom here that either some research will be missing, some research is already complete. Um, And that's gonna be detailed in all of them. Following year 64, the tournament did not complete because for some apparent reason, the Champions Cup final was abandoned for reasons I do not know. But the Philadelphia Ukrainian Nationals were the team that had qualified for the event, but however they withdrew. As you can see in the bottom, those are the information. I'm not going to go into depth details on all of them uh, because I want to have this presentation available to all the members so that you can see which is the information from which years that I'm missing, uh, that the research is complete and what is not complete. In 65 and 66, there wasn't uh, any representative. Um, As you can see, uh, the reasons, uh, there wasn't any reasons why the USSF did not send a team, but in the 65 tournament, uh, there was qualification. However, the then uh, representative at the time could have been the Philadelphia Ukrainian Nationals, but they did not take part of it. Also, uh, you had the Los Angeles Kickers as the Open Cup uh, champion, but many of these club teams uh, chose, as you'll see, decided not to compete. Um, Many of them citing either financial or scheduling conflicts. The 66 tournament was canceled without any uh, reasons why by CONCACAF. Seven, finally, the Ukrainian nationals played their first game. Um, it was a two games against uh, Alianza FC of El Salvador. Both games took place in El Salvador. And Alianza actually went on to win that that year's tournament against uh, Joan Colombia of the then Netherlands Antilles. In '68, you have the New York Greek Americans Athletes Astoria, S.C. Long name. That's why I just call them the Greek Americans A.A. The third club from the champions uh, to compete in the Champions Cup from the United States. They drew against. They drew the pairings against. Uh, Club Deportivo Toluca, Mexico. Surprisingly, I was able to find uh, a match report stating that they hosted a game at Downing Stadium before 2,000 fans. Imagine, you know, hosting a Mexican side at that time uh, and drawing that number of fans, but unfortunately, the team lost 3-2. Toluca also went on to win that year's respective tournament. The formation of the uh, National Professional Soccer League, as well as the United Soccer Association, both the respective winners of uh, Oakland Clippers and Los Angeles Wolves, decided not to compete in that year's respective tournament. In no representation by the US. Tournament was won by Cruz Azul. The Greek Americans returned in 1970, were the second club to qualify after winning their third Open Cup. They had 1,500 fans in attendance at Gaelic Park, but lost to Cruz Azul in the first leg. They were eliminated by the same Mexican side. 1971, first time two US teams in the Champions Cup. You had the Open Cup champion, Elizabeth Soccer Club, as well as now the North American Soccer League champion, Rochester Lancers. Just briefly on Elizabeth Soccer Club, they played one game, drew 0-0 against Cruz Azul of Mexico before 2,500 fans in Union, New Jersey. For reasons uh, that I still would like to complete is the club withdrew afterwards and did not play the second leg, therefore Cruz Azul was awarded a 2-0 forfeit and advanced to the final round that was held that year, well, later that year in Guatemala City. The Rochester Lancers eliminated Pembroke-Hamilton in a thrilling series that had to go to overtime. They were scheduled to play against Chivas Guadalajara, but as you can see from the date, and because the Champions Cup, this, there was never a concrete schedule. Many of the teams um, had to withdraw because of scheduling conflicts. There wasn't like a set concrete international schedule at the time. Um, so it was listed that Chivas was supposed to play the Rochester Lancers in February of 72. They even pushed the finals back. But who wants to go to Rochester in February? So it was decided that Chivas withdrew, citing those respective reasons. And the Lancers advanced to the final group. At the time, they were the most successful U.S. team, hosting, you know victories over the Caribbean teams, held the, the eventual champion, Cruz Azul, to a 1-1 draw, and then lost a couple of... Uh, close matches to the host as well as of Costa Rica. Like I said, Fris Azul did win their third consecutive championship that year, but it was played in 72. The following times of 72 and 73, no U.S. team was represented, but just wanted to point out the teams that actually lifted the trophy at the time. And I've also wanted to see, uh, also the clubs that could have advanced or could have accepted the invitation or qualified. Um, As you can see the listing of teams uh, for 72, the Dallas Tornado, Um, also the New York Greeks from the American Soccer League, respective champions chose not to compete and the tournament was won by Olympia of Honduras. In 73, the first uh, non North Central American team, SV Transvaal, who was technically listed in the Caribbean, lifted the trophy in an all-Caribbean final. In 1974, Maccabee Athletic Club did officially qualify for the Champions Cup that year after winning the Open Cup the year before. They we're scheduled to play against the Bermudan clubs in a triangular but citing either financial or scheduling conflicts they withdrew from the tournament. No representation. Steve, Steve just to yes. how, how many years are you gonna
3: take us up to? I just wanna make sure if we- I'm have going
4: an... as quickly as I can until, it's going until 1996. I'm not going to- Till ni-
3: 1996? Yeah. Uh, I think we, you know, we're beyond 15 minutes here, so we need to wrap it up in, in the next two minutes. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, I pass. will.
4: All right, 75, no representation. That could be end. 79, 81, no representation, Brooklyn. This one is for Peter Wilt, uh, the Chicago Croatians, uh, making it the first team from Chicago to appear in the Champions Cup. Quickly in 92, this was probably the most successful year for the, the teams, the Dallas Rockets, as well as the San Francisco Bay Blackhawks. Um, probably the two most successful teams in the tournament at the year, but prior to the formation of MLS. Here, Long Island Star Hercules, which I do request some assistance from you guys. Little is known from this club. The only thing I know uh, that I was able to obtain is that they're a member of the Astoria Queens based League and locally founded in 1948. Any assistance would be greatly appreciated. 95 was the last time no US club represented. Finally in 96, the Seattle Sounders competed By then, MLS was already formed, but the Sounders were already the A-League champions and decided to compete in a very delayed tournament that concluded in the summer of 97. Results, records of the teams, as you can see, the Blackhawks and the Rockets, um, not that many teams in the U.S. have been able to have those respective records in just one appearance. These are the results with the addition of the MLS teams coming in. As you can see, DC United, and LA winning it in 98 and 2000. On the floor for any questions, gentlemen. Thank you for your patience.
3: Thank you, Steve. Oh my gosh, so many memories, so many of those great clubs, those great teams, uh so many friends on a lot of those different teams and uh and then friends who were on the team the year before and stuff like that. It really uh, kind of gels, gels my memory and I'm sure it does for a lot of, of others of, of you on here. Um, I think the LA salsa really deserve a lot of attention. I got a, a special place in my heart for them uh, and so many of those other clubs, especially those New York ones. So um, I'm sure a lot of uh, you in the audience right now um, have those kinds of connections in those gaps. And I, I know um, both Tom and I uh, in the chat have Uh, posted a little uh, some questions about ANSI Um, and I I know Steve you're in a little bit of a rush that you needed to uh, perhaps leave the the, uh, session earlier Um, I'm hoping that we can kind of have questions at the end though so we can have a little bit more of a a, a nice free open dialogue where we make connections between the presentations so um, I know uh, Tom and I have raised that question if any others have questions for Steve um please post that in the chat and uh, we'll keep that in mind uh for when we we get back to that so steve thank you and i know you you felt a little pressed for time and uh certainly you know this project deserves a, a dedicated session just to itself in one day right and again the idea for this today is to get an idea of what people are doing right so um if you don't follow steve in social media um i put the social media for all three of our speakers in the um, chat. Uh, Steve is really valuable every day with his on the dates. Um, really valuable. Uh, um, it's kind of a, a go to for me daily. Um, I check to make sure what he's posted that day, because uh, there's always paths for research uh, throughout that. I know um, we'd like to hear more about ANSI and maybe how Sash can kind of uh, collaborate with that. So. Steve, thank you so much. And any questions for that that we can have to later hopefully you can still stick around. Hopefully we can get to that. But um, our next uh, speaker, uh, Bob Gansler, uh, you may recognize the surname, of course, right? Uh, What few families can can claim to have made such a positive impact on the game here in the United States. And uh, certainly Bob uh, carries this on with his research um into the future right um so it's always great to have uh, uh those those our legacy members bring so much special uh insight to the table and uh, uh but uh, bob so much more uh in that in terms of his his research project which has been shared before, before um in terms of club historians um you know focusing on clubs um He's talked about that before and, and looking forward to hearing a little bit more about that. If you don't know, Bob Gansler is senior energy solutions engineer with Excel Energy in Minneapolis. During his playing career, Bob was part of three story programs. Again, those great clubs of America, Bavarian Soccer Club, right? Bavarian Soccer Club. What a history. Uh, Marquette University High School, uh, and of course, uh, Princeton University, uh, Go Tigers Go. Uh, Bob is the historian of the Bavarian Soccer Club. In 2020, he produced a documentary about the club's 1976 National Amateur Cup title. So uh, without further ado, Bob Gansler, the floor is yours.
0: Thank you for the introduction, David. So uh, I titled this uh, Still a Paperboy, since I'm talking about the soccer coverage in Milwaukee's German newspapers. I had been a paperboy for six years that I then passed on to my brothers. So that's another tradition uh, within our family. Um, I'm going to be speaking primarily about uh, two of them, the Milwaukee Herald and the Milwaukee Deutsche Zeitung, which means the Milwaukee German newspaper. Originally, when I started digging into Bavarian soccer history and then expanding it to Wisconsin soccer history, that I, was using the Google Newspaper Archive to get the local uh, newspapers, the Journal, the Sentinel, the Journal Sentinel, uh, once they combined. And uh, as the years went on, I then uh, accessed newspapers.com to find uh, the newspapers for other cities and towns within Wisconsin that covered uh, Wisconsin soccer. um, And then also some Things that I was finding in the Chicago Tribune for uh, the various games uh, between Wisconsin and Illinois teams, um, and most recently I found that there was a Croatian newspaper in Chicago, the Danica, that covered one covered uh, the Milwaukee's uh, Croatian Eagles team. So I found a number of. Articles and box scores associated with that. But after I had uh, exhausted uh, the Google newspaper archive of the Milwaukee papers, and unfortunately I can't get to them anymore, they're not online anymore. And after going through the various Milwaukee or uh, Wisconsin newspapers, then it was time to go into the German newspapers. I gotten some physical copies uh, from some older club members that I I inherited so I knew that they existed but I didn't know much about what was in them. So uh, a number of years ago I happened to be going by the Minnesota History Center which was on the way to my kid's high school and I decided to stop in and see well what did they have in terms of uh, microfilms of, of newspapers and what I found out was that even though it's a Minnesota history center uh, that they had Wisconsin newspapers because they were actually printed in Minnesota in the town of Winona. So they had uh, the collection of the Milwaukee Herald uh, which was published um, from 1861 to 1982. Um, From what I've been able to find that there really wasn't dedicated sports coverage until 1951, and that that went until it, the it went out of print in in 82. Um, that it was published twice a week until 1964, and then uh, just once a week um, f- from 1964 to 1982. So uh, as I've been going through scanning and clipping articles, I found that there really were three different. Uh, Edit sport redactura, the sport editors. Um, that the first, uh, Louis Zimmerman, Paul Dagenhardt, and then Gunther Heinrich, which I have found out that at one point or another, all three uh, were members of the Bavarian Soccer Club. And we'll, we'll see that Louis Zimmerman's uh, history uh, with s- soccer coverage goes back even uh, before 51. Um, that he and his brothers had been members of the Bavarian Soccer Club, but at some point they were actually expelled, and I haven't quite figured out the reason why. Um, Paul Dagenhart was at one point the manager of the Bavarian team and then later of uh, Milwaukee Sport Club, and uh, Gunther Heinrich was a player, manager and uh, of, of, at Bavarian Soccer Club as well, as well, um, being the sports editor and publisher of the newspaper for a, a number of its years until it ceased publication. So, as I've gone and clipped articles, what I found is that well, the, the, the coverage of, of sports and club news shrank over the years. Um, in, when sports coverage first started in 51 there was an entire page well another entire page at least labeled uh as out of the sporting world um the bottom section had had stuff material out of sheboygan but that actually has proven to be useful as well because there was a sheboygan sport club up there and so there'll be information about uh soccer there but as uh the years went on there still was some significant coverage in the 70s, but uh, as we got to the 1980s, we would get game results, we'd get uh, schedules and and tables, but not a whole lot of coverage, unfortunately. But still, um, even that information has been able to has enabled me to fill in some of the holes of uh, standings and and games that I didn't have otherwise. In terms of making it useful to a more general audience um translating the material. Um, well from 1964 to 1982 it was in a Roman or Latin alphabet, so makes it easy to read and uh then relatively easy to translate. But from 51 to 64 it was written in a fracture script, which uh is very elegant and beautiful, but definitely uh, difficult to read. Um, After doing it for a while, I've I've gotten pretty good at it, but still have not mastered it, particularly since all the capital letters don't look anything like their lowercase equivalents. So what I've done in terms of translating, uh, I can, as I read it, I can, my German's not perfect, but I can, for the most part, understand what, what the articles are about, but I found that there are tools that can do the trans make the translation go a whole lot faster so i've been able to uh, using graphics programs to put then these the articles into onto a Google drive and Google then can. uh, Do optical character recognition and turn that into text so i'll. Put the stuff into onto the images onto a Google Drive, turn it into text, uh, and depending upon how clean the image is, I will be able to make it uh, be able to run the tr- turn it into text, clean clean up what the apparent uh, misspellings are, miss, uh, readings are, and then I can uh, just as easy as this. Tell it to translate into English, and it will turn it into English. And then I'll go through and uh, clean up where there might be some mistranslations or things that don't make sense, or uh, when people's names get butchered. Um, occasionally, when the fancy hits me, I'll, uh, if, particularly if the is short, I'll just uh, I can do voice typing and I can just read it off, and it will turn the what I read into text. So uh, now I knew that there were other German newspapers and uh, I found out that a number of them were being held at the Wisconsin Historical Society in Madison, which was about half a mile from where I lived for a number of years and didn't, didn't know it back in the 90s. Uh, had I known it, I probably would have been spending a lot of time there back in the day. Um, so I'm able to get microfilms sent over from the historical society to my local library. I've gone through their catalogs to figure out what uh, things that they have uh, and then keep track of my, they'll only send me five microfilms at a time to keep track of what I've, what I've uh, already gone through, what's on order, what I haven't touched yet. So yeah. Um, This is what I've got regarding the the Milwaukee uh, Deutsche Zeitung, which started back in 1933. It was published until 1991. Um, So from what I have been able to find so far, that sports coverage started in 34, went to at least 1949. And I know that because I have an actual hard physical copy of an article from from 1949. I know that there was sports coverage. Uh, I've also got something from 82, um, but it was something that was published quite regularly. It was published uh, at least through 1943, published uh, Monday through Saturday. So uh, my process of extracting the informations has, has changed over the years, uh, particularly with Better scanners that now I can get the entire with the most recent scanner that my library has, I can get the entire page at a time. So I'll just scan the entire page and then go through at home the images and find the uh, the relevant information. So you can see they they had an entire page of of sporting information every single day. So I'll look through to. For the stuff that I'm interested in, the, the headlines are a giveaway. There are sections that are always going to have something about the, the soccer clubs, the, the sports calendar, the sections about the gymnastic and sport clubs, and then club news. So um, what I'll do is I'll find what the relevant sections are. I'll uh, using a graphics program, pull pull those things out. Um, Occasionally I find even other things that I know might be relevant, like the IGDS, which was the, an association of German, uh, German Sportvereine, uh, sport clubs, so uh, beyond just soccer. And then I found that there's been some information uh, hidden well, not so much hidden, but there are other sections that uh, appeared various times over the years, uh, all about sports, and then a section called Gutholtz, which means good wood, and I guess it's an idiom for have a good game, and I, uh, what I've recently found is that uh, FC Bayern had its own bowling league for a while against some of its other uh, Bavarian clubs, and uh, well, that day they lost to the uh, the, the singing club, but most of the time FC Byron was the winner of the bowling games. So I'll, what I do to condense uh, what I've found uh, using the graphics program GIMP is to pull out the various pieces of information and put them all into a, uh, a, a single image that then I can put on one page Uh, for where I keep things collected. Um, But as I mentioned, trying to translate all of that, uh, Google is technically able to read Fracture, but it does a horrible job of doing it. So uh, late last year, I was looking for some other tools that perhaps could help me with it. And I found that uh, Transcribus had a place where you could upload images and it would translate them and it did a a fairly good job and digging deeper I found then that they have a program free that you can download and you'll get like the equivalent of 3000 pages uh, of of translations
1: for free I haven't gotten to that point yet but um, Bob uh, two minute warning here to uh, wrap things up and then we'll get to the third thanks got it okay
0: so it makes it rather easy to, tra- to uh, translate. Uh, it reads the text and, and tr- well, not translate it, but uh, transfers it into, into text that I can then utilize. So I put all that information into, into my Word documents that I have with uh, with the headlines, which then allow me to, put things into my massive spreadsheets to come up with all-time statistics and results against various teams and what I use to post every day of what happened in Bavarian soccer history. I've also started compiling the final standings for the years for the various leagues and then calculating what what teams' results were over the years. So in ter- terms of what's next, well, um, I crossed off some of the things that I had on my what's next list. The last time I presented, I've only really got two of them completed, but I still have a lot of other things to do. So that the variety allows me to uh, switch gears. If I start getting burned out on doing translations, there are other things that I can do to keep myself uh, motivated to continue doing this. And that's it.
1: Uh, Wonderful, Bob. I just took, uh, reclaiming the host let me give it to to chuck right now chuck i am making you the host uh we lost david there for a bit he's rejoining uh but but i want to say a comment on that so so bob uh, was uh, a teammate uh of mine in uh college and he was an engineer uh, and i was the historian and uh he played right in front of me so I was always you know behind him if you will and, and I feel so behind him now on the, the use of this un- unbelievable technology. I think it's a, a real model uh, in particular for foreign language uh, newspapers and kind of unlocking uh, you know a whole new realm. Of uh, soccer history in the United States. So uh, thank you for for showing us how to do that. I, I would imagine some people are going to be chasing you down uh, to uh, to say how did you do that again. So uh, you know, wonderful presentation and uh, uh, clearly uh, you know, massive help uh, to, to researchers out there. Does anybody have any questions for Stephen Bob? I'm going to start one with for Stephen. I'm curious with the terminology, with investigators, right? I mean, is that, you know, something in the Spanish language? You know, so you have historians, investigators, discover. I mean, it's an interesting, you know, choice of, of a term. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Um,
4: and, and yeah, I, I get that question a lot. Um, the thing is that uh, when I was uh, invited to the group, uh, long story short, uh, the the founding members were already uh, members, historians that I had, uh, you know, communication or contact with during my time at CONCACAF, and when, after several years, I didn't know that they had a group that they wanted to start something, so adding me to the mix, um, so picking the names, we did go through a long process of which would be the best form, but uh, the majority of uh, the members that I've gone through the list, uh, they are from Spanish-speaking countries. So investigators, investigadores in Spanish, um, and it's a term that is used a lot by the many historians, even from the many historians down in South America. So they needed to make sure that that word was in the respective names. So I was one of the ones that say that that's usually a word that is not really used so much uh, in the English language uh, researcher being a little bit more of a of a terminology investigator would be more like a private investigator, uh, but uh, it was a democratic vote, um, and the key thing was to make it as. The main name, as David was trying to do his best to to say it in Spanish, which, you know, you did a great job, David. I applaud you for it. (laughs) That uh, that is the original name uh, in our statues. So and that's the name that itself. But obviously we needed to have a very similar uh, English name. And that's how it is pronounced or that's how I the one I normally use. especially when I'm dealing with other colleagues. So hopefully that explains the reason why of the word investigator, but it is mostly a a Spanish term that is used a lot uh, for research in historians. Steve, just
3: to follow up on that, because I've been wondering about that for some, since you announced the the launch, and it, you know, again, it, um, I'm just wondering if it's a matter of methodology, right? If, in other words, like it, it seems very um, fact-based and in, in terms of you know historiography, it doesn't seem as if um, your group is engaged in, in like oral history projects and things like that. You're looking for these facts, you're missing these facts. And I'm wondering if the notion of investigating uh, is in some ways tied up with that, in terms of that research that may be coming out in Spanish language, um, context or academic context. In other words, I'm just curious about that. I know um, we had uh, two other questions too. I don't know if you, is that a matter of methodology you think, or is
4: it? I mean, you you could say that, uh, like I said uh, early on, I was one of the few English speaker uh, that came into the group. Um, And to my surprise, uh, I was elected president. Um, so that's so much respect that the the group has for what i've done um previously so so yeah i mean it, it you can say that could be the case uh, many of them are really uh, you know historians uh, really old school historians um but they are learning the new uh, methods of uh of researching uh i mean I, i'm not going to mention any names, but i mean with one of my colleagues uh, from Mexico, I mean, he has a whole, you know, floor of of rooms with a lot of historical content, a lot of historical newspapers, a lot of historical, you know, uh, information, and it's just amazing. It feels like, uh, you know, probably the storage that you find in the in the Soccer Hall of Fame over there in North Carolina. So, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's really basic. Um, I I do. Uh, want to have more and more of, of a new generation of, of people within the group. Uh, and that's what we're doing. and And of course uh, I would love to have more coming from from English-speaking uh, you know countries that uh, because everyone has a history. everyone has a story and it doesn't matter from where uh, you come from within the region. so and look we're, we're ready to, to do our best to, to move forward um, and the door is open for for any historian that that wants to join.
3: Great, great, thanks so much. Well, um, it appears that I know um, there were a couple questions uh, also in the pipeline here, but let's get to Chuck's presentation now. Uh, Chuck has the ability to share screen, so go ahead, please. All right,
2: so uh, from the global to the hyperlocal here, uh, I'm gonna talk about Chicago soccer history a bit um, and moving from Chicago to the coal fields, uh, and starting out here, does anyone know what this picture is? That actually is the Braidwood Nuclear Power Plant uh, in Braidwood, Illinois. And as someone who grew up around Chicago, all I knew of Braidwood was that nuclear power plant. Uh, so when I did my first trip down to the, the coal fields area, I saw that giant nuclear power plant uh, and I thought of U.S. soccer and I stood back. And as you look at that second picture there, that is a pond that is the cooling pond for that nuclear power plant, which in my metaphor of U.S. soccer and U.S. soccer history, I look at that pond as the U.S. soccer history that we're skimming the surface of what's there. But beneath it, and this is the reason that I came up with this metaphor, is beneath that cooling pond is the town of Torino, Illinois, which at the turn of the century was a thriving mining community that had, in addition to an excellent basketball team, an excellent soccer team called the Torino Athletics. Um, So my metaphor is that soccer we're skimming the surface as we dig deeper and get hyper local we're going to find some pretty interesting stuff. Um, So where is it in Illinois that I'm talking about the X's there represent Chicago at the top of the screen St. Louis is down at the bottom. The area I'm focusing on is along the Illinois River Valley which is the Illinois River, which is the the blue lines there. And then the purple shows exactly the mining communities that I'm talking about. The little dot down by St. Louis, that's Gillespie, Illinois. But the circle that I'm looking at is related to Braidwood, Coal City, and some other communities. So that gives you an idea of the location of where they were. So anytime anyone who knows something about soccer in Illinois and knows about the international game in the long term, they know this headline that there was a team from England that came to play in the in the, the coal fields of Illinois in nineteen in the early 1900s. Literally, if I go into a restaurant and say I'm interested in soccer, oh, you must be interested in the game between the USA and England that took place in Coal City, and in fact. In 1909, there was a match between the Pilgrims um, of the UK and the Coal City Maroons. Uh, There were 22 games played by the Pilgrims on that tour of the US. Two, they lost twice, but they drew four times. Two of those draws were against Illinois teams. Uh, Gillespie, a one-to-one draw, and Coal City, uh, a 0-0 draw. So where does it start? It starts in Braidwood where that Illinois, where that giant nuclear power plant is now. And at that time, um, the Braidwood team was mainly made up of Scottish miners. Uh, Coal was discovered in 1865. In 1877, there is a um, strike and you begin to get a bit of a diverse migration into the area, so not only people from overseas, from Scotland, from British areas, but you bring in Eastern Europeans as well, and African-Americans coming up from the South working in the mines of Illinois. In the 1880s, soccer begins to take off with those immigrants from Scotland, In the 1890s, this Braidwood team becomes very, very competitive. And in fact, if you remember from the Corinthians presentation, in 1893, as part of the Columbian Exposition, there was an idea of creating a a World Cup-like event. Um, It didn't happen, but for Braidwood, it did. Braidwood players played in that tournament. You still will see mention of Braidwood's World Championship uh, soccer team from the 1890s. Now, what's interesting is of the 11 players, 10 of them were Scottish, but one of them was Belgian, Um, and that Belgian, he's sitting in the the lower right-hand corner there. Uh, His name is Anton Cully, and he was actually brought to the United States when he was four years old, so he really learned the game in the United States. Uh, You can see the team's also very good. They're playing against the Chicago Swifts and winning seven to nothing. So the quality of Braidwood soccer is high. Now, as the mind, as the coal mining expands to other communities, you get towns like Braceville, Illinois, here, which is a smaller town, a suburb, essentially, of Braidwood. But with the soccer, what happens is, instead of just competing against Chicago teams and others, they begin to form their own league, and that's the Illinois Valley League in 1904. This is the, in, an actual medal that was given to uh, players in the Illinois Valley League. Now, Braidwood and Cole City had initially played against Chicago, but again, they start playing their own matches in these local communities. This is a picture of from 1914, 1915, the Eileen Cubs. So the, the Illinois Valley League is made up of numerous teams, local teams in there, from the Eileen Cubs to the South Wilmington Rangers. Braidwood continues to participate. You get the Braceville Blues there um, participating. But one of the biggest ones is the Carbon Hill OKs. Uh, in the 20s, there's some additional leagues that continue, Joliet, Marseille, Shabona, But these are all within the Illinois Valley. So Carbon Hill, that's a picture of Carbon Hill in about 1910 from one of the the, um, mining hills uh, of the area. So the town is founded, there's about 2,000 people. 1893, you get soccer beginning. Uh, By 1904, the Carbon Hill OKs win that inaugural uh, Illinois Valley Cup. Uh, The names that are in there on that team are important in this area. You get the Tallmans, the Smiths, the Kelly. Um, By 1910, the population is decreasing significantly, dropping by more than half, but the soccer is continuing. And why is that? You got young people playing the game. Um, The little mascot in the front, that person's name is John Vedano. The name Vedano will become very important in U.S. soccer, as well as the Tallmans. You can see from their kit there, the Tallmans got the stripes. By 1914, 1915, you get the hoops in that area. But Carbon Hill soccer is an an important element for Coal City. And in fact, in that international match, Many of the players were from Carbon Hill, not Coal City. Now, Coal City is a bigger town. It's still got 5,000 people in it. The advantage of a um, 5,000-person town is they have pretty decent archives. So there'll be quite a bit of documentation about the area. Uh, Coal City was successful in the Chicago Leagues. There were important players like Beefy Archibald, who the Pilgrims were very impressed with. But sports is very important. So, this picture here is of the Coal City Dewdrops, who are not a soccer team, they're a baseball team. Uh, Baseball, basketball, and soccer are the three sports in the area. And numerous players on that baseball team were also soccer players. Example 1906, and the advantage of being a larger town, they document well who the players are on that team. A couple more shots of Coal City. Maroon's team, you can see the kits changing. The last picture there in the corner with the stripes, the the mining company begins to provide the uniforms because of the success of the team. This picture here is from South Wilmington, one of the other areas that is of importance. So players from the coal fields, by the time I'm talking about, are USA born players. And they are also spreading out. For example, the circle person here, his name is Red Oberta. He grew up in South Wilmington, but here he's playing for the Benilde Illinois Thistles around 1912. There's the Tallmans again. There were seven Tallman brothers born between 1878 and 1898. So you got 20 years of one family. Uh, they played starting in Carbon Hill, moved to Coal City, Joliet, St. Louis, and Chicago, and are important in the Chicago area for numerous years. Another great player is George Fish Heron, 1892. He's played for, was born in 1892, but was a Chicago bricklayer in the 1920s. Here's a picture of um, the Olympia soccer team or players from Olympia. Olympia won the 1922 Illinois soccer championship. This picture here includes some of the minors that were on that team, including Dugo Gamara. And then lastly, as I mentioned, Vidano. Barney Barney, Dickey Vidano played for almost 40 years at the highest level, uh, including on the Sparta championship teams, um, the US championship teams, as well as Joliet teams. So these are some of the families There's tons and tons of them in the area. They're all U.S. born and they're all playing there. So the Coalfields and Chicago connection is essential. Now, remember, some of these towns are 1,800 people. This is a shot from Comiskey Park. There's over 2,000 people in the crowd watching this game. So the quality of the players is important for Chicago. As I mentioned, the 1922 um, Olympia team, uh, six of the starters were actually coalfield players. Uh, Gabe Logan, I think Gabe is on the call. I thought I saw him. I went back and watched Gabe's presentation. He showed a picture of Rangers. The Rangers Athletic Club and talked about Rangers Athletic Club. I was just down in Coal City the other day and came across a reference to Rangers. And it turns out that nine or possibly all 11 of those Rangers players were actually from the Coalfield, US born Coalfield players that moved um, to the Chicago area. So they're essential. The second part of my research also gets into what are the players doing in their regular lives. Uh, So this picture here is Dougal Gamara. And you can see how well dressed he is. You look at the end, that's Bill Tallman. On the other side there, very, very important to know what's what's happening off the soccer field as well. In these images, you don't get that in the newspaper. By doing the newspaper, it's looking at these scrapbooks where you see what, what else is happening in the area. So there's sort of a heyday in 1927, Coal City, many of these players who played in Chicago come back to the coal fields. They're not working as minors anymore, but they're also still playing soccer. And in 1927, win the Illinois championship with a mix of younger players and the players who'd already come back from Chicago. Um, throughout, The area, soccer starts to move a little bit west. Um, Dalzell, Illinois, which is an interesting, the 1930s and 40s are very successful with an Italian team, but they weren't the first Dalzell team to be successful. This is from the early 1900s, the picture of that team. Again, in the 1920s and 30s, Dalzell is participating around Chicago. But so what happens in the area when everyone is moved out? By 1920, there's only 200 people living in Carbon Hill, Illinois. But Carbon Hill inaugurates a homecoming and soccer is an essential element of that homecoming. So there's great documentation of the players. These are players from that 1904 team are coming back every year. And soccer is an essential element of the homecoming festivities. Now, another important part of those homecoming festivities, as there's fewer players, they import Chicago teams and the Chicago teams that they bring down, there's two of them in particular, Necaxa and Atlas, which are Mexican teams that are coming to this coal area. So soccer is a bridge between communities in the area. So a quick summary of what what I've been doing. I need to get back to Braidwood, Braceville, South Wilmington, and Joliet to to research a bit more on the specifics of it. Um, The social climate of the area is very important. As I said, this is really focusing on men and the boys game, but the women's game. Women play softball, they play basketball, and it's documented very well in the newspapers. The soccer is a little bit less so. This picture here is Kate Gamara, the spouse of Dougal Gamara, winner of the 1922 Peel Cup. She's wearing the Olympia jersey. She's got the Peel Cup with her. Whether she was a player or not, I don't know. Here's another picture I just came across the other day. I don't know the team, there's no marking, but if you look in the middle, there's clearly two women who are wearing the jersey. This is clearly a match with fans. Um, So I don't know if this is a one-off shot or whether the women's game participates more. I know in the high schools, in the 1920s, there was definitely intra with girls soccer. I'm starting to find some inter-school soccer competition among girls in the 1920s. Um, So I'm hoping to find a bit more about that. The other thing is the diversity. I mentioned African-American minors coming up for jobs um, one family in particular that came to Carbon Hill was the Norwood family. If you look at this picture here in the front row, you'll see Claude, Alex, and Topsy Norwood, along with some Talmans and some Smiths and some Joneses, so soccer players. From 1901 to 1915, there are at least three Norwoods who are playing on the Carbon Hill team. So you have African-American players at a time where baseball is completely segregated, but soccer in the fields of Illinois is not segregated. So another area for much more to look into. And as I've mentioned, the Dalzell team, I wanna get a bit further west towards Spring Valley and uh, Dalzell in particular. Spring Valley, in addition to the soccer, fascinated right after the haymarket incident in 1880s in chicago the anarchist the center of american anarchism moves to spring valley illinois where spring valley is also home to some great soccer teams and dalzell like i say in the 30s and 40s becomes a a powerhouse of illinois soccer so my conclusion uh, here about things is that soccer in these communities was not a one-off unique event. It was central to the community and, and its identity. Um, big matches were scheduled for Christmas, for Thanksgiving, for decoration days, um, times that families gathered, and soccer was important. So for example, the Braceville Blues, they hosted a masked ball every New Year's Eve. Um, When the British Legion team from Chicago comes down to play in Coal City, they bring not only their soccer team, they bring a 50-person Kiltie band to play for the people in Coal City. And 50 years after the event, Carbon Hill is still using soccer as a central element for their homecoming event. So I'll finish with a a report from the Joliet newspaper in 1915 of what it was like in Coal City, Illinois, around the New Year's holidays. Cole City ball fans had a, an amazing day. In the morning, the high school soccer team played Hartfords. In the afternoon, the Cole City juniors played the McWhites of Kenosha, Wisconsin. On Sunday, Sunday forenoon, the junior freshmen played Carbon Hill team at the Maroon Ballpark. In the afternoon, the South Enders played the Cannonballs. And after that match, it was the five A's against the Eileen Cubs. So you can see soccer as an essential element of culture and society in the coalfields at that time.
3: So that's my presentation. Thank you very much, Chuck. And uh, yeah, I'm awfully glad you were able to share the visuals. With, <laughs> the, the photos were a really important part of that. So, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, we are beyond the 90 minute mark uh, We're in the 91st minute and I know we probably deserve some uh, injury time here uh, due to technology so if any of you need to go uh, after the 90 minute mark um, I do completely understand but um, Gabe and Gary did have questions even before check even before Chuck, uh, even before Chuck uh, began his So um, I do want to give you both each the opportunity to ask a quick question, if you could, uh, with a sense of brevity, if possible. Uh, What a fool am I to ask somebody to be brief. I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead, Gabe.
0: I don't have a question as much as I have a comment. Thank all three presenters for that. Uh, Bob, I've been kind of thinking about your presentation and research, and I've been enjoying it. One thing I'd like to alert you to is the uh, Dennis Schwaben uh, brochures when the Midwest German teams would come together they would often have uh, snapshots and player listings of those teams in the regions you're likely already familiar with them but it's just
3: something that's always kind of been in the back of my head
0: and that's my comment thank you
1: thanks
3: I'd love to see what those look like Gabe if you have any images Please share.
1: Sounds pretty crazy looking
5: in those. (laughs) All the more, all the more reason. Cool, Gary.
3: You had a quick question.
4: Uh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, it was a really quick question for Bob actually, because he he mentioned on in his presentation two different methods for translation, which is something that I'm kind of trying to kind of pin down a little bit. One is um using Google Drive to turn uh, images into text and then using Google translate. And then the other one was using Transcribus, And I just wondered which of those he felt was a better tool or an easier tool to use.
0: Well, Transcribus, it doesn't actually translate. It just, it just converts images to text. And what I found, it's so much, it is much better at, I mean, it, it was built to deal with handwriting. But people have trained, have come up with training modules so that it can do more calligraphic text, like German Fraktur is. So it it does a much better job of of transcribing, as its name, um, that calligra- that calligraphy into text than than Google does. But in terms of translating, it's it's Google and me doing it.
3: Okay. Thank you.
5: Patrick, um, you have your hand raised. Yep. Thank you, David. Uh, This, uh, I guess, I just have a couple comments for Chuck. The one is, uh, this is an interesting presentation and it mirrors, I guess, a lot of what I've done with uh, research into the Birmingham, uh, Alabama leagues, the semi-pro and amateur leagues. So we may want to compare notes on that. Uh, I do know of a number of uh, the coal mining communities in and around the Birmingham district. That were essentially wiped out during the violent uh, united mine workers strikes of the turn of the century um illinois was where most of those people ended up so uh, we might want to just like i said compare notes on that and then the other thing was it was kind of interesting going through your presentation because i have a connection my 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 grandparents on my mom's side were both from cherry illinois which is just north of uh, spring valley so i was getting my geography there there's no history of soccer playing but they were Italian coal miners in that area as well there is
2: history cherry cherry played against those teams and cherry is actually very famous for the 1909 coal mining disaster one of yep. the the most essential but they did also play soccer oh okay um, so that is i need to get west to that area to to get more because i've just seen results mm-hmm. i haven't seen who the players were yet
5: Okay. Yeah, there's no, there's no history in my family that I know of, at least on that side. On my dad's side, yes, in Fall River, but not, not here. Thanks.
3: Yeah, you know, we, we, we follow those threads of the textile industries, but uh, uh, I am married a Pittsburgh girl, so it uh, might be a good reason to, to triangulate that with the, the really rich Western Pennsylvania uh, scene, too, and see if some names kind of go from one place to the other. It might be really neat to check that out. Um, well, uh, if there are no other really urgent pressing questions, we've gone uh, deep into six minutes of added time. So I uh, just want to thank our, our three speakers, uh, Stephen, uh, Bob, and Chuck, uh, for really fascinating presentations. Um, again, we want to keep things going with First Friday. So if you'd like to present on your research, it doesn't have to be so formal, right? And if you if you want something that would take an entire session, uh, we'd be happy to accommodate and fit that into the schedule, right? It's it's not that we don't have space for that. So the um, you know, the idea here is really to to build upon our sense of collegiality, and to uh, be you know sharing ideas and things like that. So um, thank you again to our to our three speakers uh, sharing their really great research projects, and uh, hopefully it's been a little bit of fun in this kind of Weird way to uh, to share in the World Cup draw uh, as we're doing it, right? Watching, you know, mediated through a variety of screens. Uh, any other uh, thoughts, questions, concerns anyone wants to
1: have? Or Tom, you want to walk us out? Um, I'll I made a comment on the first two presentations. I'll I'll walk us out with with the last one. There was a great documentary um, that I've watched over here. Uh, on Shankly um, and uh, Jock Steen. And, and at, at the beginning, they talk about coal miners and it, it was kind of the elite of the working class, right? And uh, they walked with a swagger, you know, they had this lingo, this aura about them and, and the great clip, I think the, the end of it is they called themselves the Lords of the Underground right? So to mirror or piggyback on David, we have this huge textile um, influence on early American soccer. And it's great to see, you know, the the coal mines, uh, you know, pulling a shift as well. But uh, thank you to all. Uh, Wonderful to to see all this, you know, fertile work going on uh, uh, in the society and around the country. Just just wonderful. Thank you.